Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, how are you? What's going on? What's happening in Ed World? Uh, this and that. What about in Jeff World? This, this and that, coincidentally. Hmm. My wife sent me a story that I thought you would be interested in. Yeah, go on. Because I think a discovery of recent episodes is that there's an ornithologist who wants to get out of you. Yes. This love of birds. Yes, 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 I get it. Your ducks... Your heron, yes. your potential stork, stork. Which might have been an egret. Yeah. So, yeah, this is the story. It's about a seagull. Go on. A seagull which has stolen £300 worth of snacks wow. by regularly carrying products in its beak out of a Tesco store. And I just want to say here for legal reasons, let's not presume that this seagull is, is guilty. You no, know, exactly. Presumed innocent. Yeah. I mean, re- yeah. Remember Richard Maidley. I mean, he, he was acquitted. Yeah. This, this seagull has been caught on camera stealing mini cheddars. I really like mini cheddars, actually. I'm with the seagull. I don't think they've released the CCTV footage in case anybody recognises and can identify the seagull. What is now going to happen to the seagull? It says here the bird has become so notorious in Paynton in Devon, yeah. locals now refer to it as Stephen Seagull. Do you get that reference? Yes, I do. What is it? It's to do with, I think it's a Labour politician from the 1950s. I think it's actually the action movie. <laughs> Stephen Seagull, right, right, I get right. it, I get it. Yeah, ha, ha. But right, I mean, it's, right. complete, it's completely believable that you wouldn't know who Stephen Seagull yeah. was. I mean, I, I yeah. don't think I've no, ever seen one of his films. Anyway, anyway, so what's going to happen? There's a bit more colour to the story. Do you keep going? In addition <laughs> to uh, mini cheddars, he also likes tangy cheese Doritos. So you can draw a line between those two. Yeah. And also Monster Munch. Honestly, I think the Seagull's got good taste. Are you a Monster Munch fan? Yeah, okay, a bit get stuck in your teeth, but I do quite like a Monster what Munch. What flavour? I, I like the pickled onion one. Basically, I'll eat any crisps. Right. There's this strategy that people use when they're around me, both my children and people in my office, which is to buy salt and vinegar crisps, because it's the crisps I like the least, but I still end <laughs> up eating theirs. I basically say, I'm not going to have any crisps for dietary reasons. I'll have some of yours. If you did, like, did the pattern of the favourite flavour of people are in my circle, it would basically be salt and vinegar, but that's only because that's not the one I will absolutely wolf down. I mean, I like a quaver, I like a mini cheddar, I like cheese and onion. Twiglets, I like a twiglet. The, the full gamut. Basically, I just like all crisps. I don't think there's any crisps I don't like, actually. Well, I don't, I don't know how true that is or isn't of Stephen Siegel, because those are the only three mentioned. It also mentions that he has been known to shoplift up to three times a day. Oh, that's excessive. Does that not suggest to you that he's got someone on the inside, like the security guard? <laughs> Someone on the inside. Wouldn't you just ban him? What are they thinking? Like when he when he comes in, they think, oh, he's back again. But let's not judge him by his past mistakes. Maybe he's had to spend some serious money this time. Why wouldn't you just shoo him out whenever you saw him? Yeah. Anyway, I think that's been great on the seagull. Brilliant material. <laughs> well done. Uh, okay, I'm going to see your seagull. Yeah. And I'm going to raise you a yeah. flamingo. Yeah. 
in this story from the New York Times, which I think I sent to you, Flamingo number 492 is still on the run 17 years later. A fisherman sighting in March confirmed that a flamingo that fled a Kansas Zoo in 2005 has defied the old sliver Pixar-worthy life in the wilds of Texas. On a windy day in Wichita, Kansas, 2005, number 492 made its escape. The workers at Sedgwick County Zoo had forgotten to clip the African flamingo's wings. Uh, The zoo was unable to retrieve the bird before it flew away from Kansas, facing long odds for survival in a region of the country with no other flamingos and few environments suited for its needs. Right, then fast forward, David Foreman, a machinist and fishing guide in Edna, Texas, didn't know any of this when he and a friend set out on a boat in Port Lavaca on March the 10th this year. He couldn't believe his eyes. My brain was telling me, no way you're looking at a flamingo, but my eyes were telling me, that's what it is, there's no mistake. And he basically spotted it. Uh, I think they've found a tag on it. It's apparently called Pink Floyd. I think that's better than Steven Seagull. Now, you know what this has made me think? Old Storkykins could be an escapee. You don't think it's uh, Pink Floyd the Flamingo in disguise, do you? Wasn't a flamingo, I don't think. No, but I'm saying it was a disguise mm. because if, if he's been on the run that long successfully, presumably he has had to adopt a number of aliases and disguises over yeah, the way. Yeah, that is true, actually. Why isn't this uh, a major Apple TV or Netflix series? This flamingo on the run for a crime he didn't commit. I want to hear more. I mean, obviously your um, wife is uh, is very high up in the world of justice. Yeah. She's a judge. Do you think yes. maybe there is a future for her in animal justice, bringing flamingos and seagulls to account? <laughs> okay. Do you want me to tell her or would you rather preserve your friendship with her? <laughs> Jeff, what is it like? You're suggesting reality TV, like an animal justice reality yes, TV yes. program. Do you not think by the time you're at the High Court or whatever she's at, there's no, she can't go any further in that world. So then she could move sideways like Judge Rinder, but into, into animal justice. That's dead air. <laughs> I don't think I want to suggest it to Justine. I think it's in your interests that I don't, okay. I don't mention it. Okay. Um, do you want to tell people what's on the episode? Yes, this week we're discussing the Right to Roam campaign and public access to land. The system in England certainly is archaic. Only 8% of land and 3% of waterways in England are currently accessible to the public. Uh, A a government review, which was going to look at access to natural areas, was recently shelved. To find out more, we're talking to Nick Hayes, who's an author who writes about all this stuff, Uh, John Moses, who is a Right to Roam campaigner, and Nadia Sheikh from Kinder in Colour, which was an extremely interesting uh, event that took place a few weeks ago, because one of the aspects of this we'll be getting into is that um, black people and people of colour are affected disproportionately in terms of access to the countryside. So it should be a good chat. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that I am, and I've sort of kept this relatively quiet from you, I am basically back on the cooking horse. Aha. I've become quite a convert to single pan cooking because I tend to do a lot of washing up in our house. And I so I'd rather do less washing up. And I made, even if I say so myself, a rather nice aubergine and tomato-y thing. Is that how you would describe it if you were uh, a waiter? No, I, I was slightly grasping for the actual name of it, and I can't now remember the name of it. But it was aubergines, tomatoes, a bit of garlic, a bit of onion, mm. uh, uh, toasted almonds. I thought it was quite good. I think Justine sort of thought it was a six out of ten, I'd say. 
When you say a six out of ten... Well, she didn't say six out of ten, but she wasn't sort of... I kept saying, I think this is the nicest thing I've made in this style. And she's like, hmm. It nice. must be exhausting married to you, the fishing for compliments. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. And what, what are you doing with all the free time that you now have through not washing up multiple pans? I don't know, really. Less time spent in marigolds, then. What's marigolds? Washing up gloves. I don't tend to wear washing up gloves. Ed, that's why your hands are like a miner's. I, I think it's more that the sort of... Well, it's sort of given me a kind of, I've got my lane, you know what I mean? You've, you've found your niche. You chuck it all in and then... I mean, it just sounds like a Mediterranean delight. That's what I am. What's your reason to be cheerful? Um, I haven't done that much, but I've, uh, I've just finished Severance on Apple TV. Have you watched that? No, I think you recommended it. It's very stylized. Right. Something about emptying your mind or something. Well, it's imagine if you could uh, separate your work self from your real life self. Um, in some ways, it's a metaphor about the ways that our work lives uh, spill over into our personal lives and what is or isn't good about that. But it's, it's some procedure is invented where you can elect to have what they call severance, and then you get to live your life, and then from the moment you walk into work, you have no memory of what happens, and then then you just leave. But then conversely, there's this other version of you that just lives permanently in the workplace. And I, I think, that, like I say, it's a lot of it is about uh, a metaphor for workplace balance, but also um, maybe about the way people are, are treated at work. Sounds good, actually. It is good. It's just it's like a touch science fiction. It's got a touch of something like the prisoner to it so some people won't like that aspect of it but it's really good and there's some great performances in it as well so that could be my reason do you think i'll like it i'm looking for i'm looking for a box set i'll tell you what you might quite like which is on disney plus yeah amy schumer's new series which is more of a comedy drama than a oh that's good than a comedy and i think given that you've recently liked things like feel good and starstruck yeah i think you might like it's called life and beth Sounds good. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, if I'm going to point you in the direction of something, bearing in mind that trying to find a thing that both you and Justine will sit and happily watch, I think maybe that's the, uh, that's the You're thing. You're very good at recommendations. Although I've had a few misses recently. A few misses with the misses. No, you're very good. Almost as good as Steven Seagal at nicking mini cheddars. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to speak first to Nick Hayes, author of The Trespass Book and The Trespasser's Companion. Hello, Nick. Hey there, how are you doing? Doing well, and it's not often we have guests who aren't on dry land, who aren't landlubbers, so you're currently <laughs> on your boat on the Thames. That's correct. You might need to remedy that. We're a fascinating bunch, the boaters. <laughs> I was just saying to Nick that I have this, I don't know if fancy is the right word, but I sometimes think if, if everything went poorly and my marriage and my wife left me, I do sometimes have a little daydream about living on one of those boats. It's funny that your fantasy is my number one <laughs> warning sign. The sort of ageing, divorced male smoking rollies cynically, having seen it all before, uh, is not uncommon on the cut. So it is quite interesting to meet someone <laughs> for whom that's a dream. Now, tell me, how um, did public access to land become a such a passion for you? Oh, I've always, I mean, I'm a professional illustrator, uh, so I've always carried a sketchbook around, even from, you know, the age of eight. Uh, and every now and then there'd be like a fallen oak or something just magnificent to put on paper. 
And so it didn't seem like such a crime to sort of step over the loosely swathed lines of barbed wire and sit there for 40 minutes or an hour or two hours. It's a very peaceful way to embed yourself in nature is just quietly drawing. And then bit by bit, I was met with a a, a kind of incongruous uh, spluttering outrage of gamekeepers or land workers, representatives of the owner of the land. It, It was almost like they were seeing what I was doing through a prism that I didn't quite understand. And it's no fault of their own. It's the, the, the English laws of property reinvent what I was doing, quietly sketching an oak tree, uh, into a direct attack on the personhood of the owner of the estate. And it's what lawyers themselves call a legal fiction, which is a polite way of just saying totally made up. And it's it's so weird. I mean, England specifically fares particularly badly on this, and we'll we'll come on to other parts of the United Kingdom. But we we only have access to Rome on eight percent of our land. A third of the land is still owned by the aristocracy. What is the background to all this from a historical perspective? This this mindset. In two words, I guess, it's hierarchy and hunting. It was William the Conqueror who came over and uh, started to enclose these great swathes of uh, what we used to call common land, areas of land that were, were owned by sort of Thane or an earl, but they were allowed to be used by all of the people that relied upon them for like winter fuel or for taking your pigs or cows to pasture. Common lands effectively used to... Uh, be the welfare state before a welfare state was necessary. You could be poor, but you could be subsistent. But William the Conqueror came along uh, and decided that he needed huge swathes of land basically to breed deer so that him and his chums could uh, hunt them for pastime. So you no longer had the right to subsist off your local natural resource. You were forcibly expelled and evicted uh, and excluded from nature. As time went on, that became ratified by a new kind of profession of land surveyors and lawyers, and suddenly the land became a commodity and not a resource. It it became more of an investment. But these days, we've just been born into a climate where effectively we've forgotten what we've lost. You know, if you went to a country such as Estonia or Scotland or Sweden or Norway, places where they do have the right to responsibly and peaceably access nature. And all of a sudden you decided to put the wire fence around uh, the river. There'd be a national outcry. But in England, we've been born with that fence around the river already raised. So like I said, we've forgotten what we've lost. You are yourself part of a long tradition. There's been protest and uh, revolt against this, stretching back centuries. That's absolutely true. Octavia Hill founder of the National Trust. She was almost appallingly radical on nature and and, and social uh, inequality. That access to open spaces could kind of lighten the soul. And the science has now sort of jumped in and proved all of that. She would actually pay people to um, destroy the fences that were put up around common land. It's down to her that Epping Forest is still common land. It's down to her that we can still walk around Hampstead Heath. All of these things would have been developed. And so, yeah, there is this long lineage. And we're going to be talking later in the episode about Kinder Scout. We Just quickly tell us why 1932 is significant. For some reason, a relatively small trespass seems to have caught the public consciousness. 400 kids walk up a hill 
in protest at the Duke of Devonshire banning effectively all of Manchester, Leeds, Bolton, Sheffield from these grouse moors. And they only really overspilled that one solitary right of way that they did have access to. They only really jump over it for about 400 yards uh, until they're met with uh, pretty brutal violence from the gamekeepers and five of them are arrested. The very next week, 10,000 people gathered at Winnett's Pass in retributional protest at both the arrest and solidarity for the initial action. It really caught a zeitgeist. People were rammed into industrialized cities, literally gasping for breath. They needed that kind of open space. And it was the scale of the absurdity. One man, the Duke of Devonshire, can have like 40 square miles of land that the rest of these huge urban centers aren't allowed anything. And I'd say these days that the equivalent of that scale is the situation with rivers. People's eyes fall out when we tell them you're only allowed access to 3% of England's rivers. It's not acceptable. So England scores poorly. Yeah. In terms of the rest of the UK, then, Scotland is the, is the star pupil. Certainly in terms of public access, due to the Land Reform Act in 2003, maybe the most radical right-to-roam legislation across Europe. It really is something special. What is the Scottish version of it? What, what does the Scottish right-to-roam allow you to do? It allows, and therefore, if it's the law that allows, actively encourages on a societal level, uh, wild camping. You know, this notion that you might want to sleep in the woods or sleep at the, on the cliffs by the sea, hear the dawn chorus, watch the stars come out kind of thing, is soon to be made literally criminal by Pretty Patel. But in Scotland, you're actively encouraged to do that. You're allowed to uh, swim, to paddle, kayak paddleboard, to ramble. There are uh, a whole list of exclusions. You can't walk around war monuments. You can't walk around a primary school. You can't walk around someone's back garden. Of course you can't. But all of these things are set out in stone. Am I right in thinking that it took its inspiration from the Nordic countries? I used to spend a lot of time in Sweden and they have this thing, Alamansret, which sounds very similar to, to what you're describing in terms of the land and, and the water being for everyone. And my understanding of that is it's it's very much in the culture and the tradition, even though it was only maybe enshrined in law in the middle of the last century. Yeah, to be honest, Alice Men's that, which just translates as all people's right, was what existed on that land before the land or the nation even had a name. And for various reasons, it's important to legislate towards it and to put it on paper. But these were common rights that were widely accepted. And they're considered as part of the national heritage of the country. But what's crucial is that they're proud of it. It's like, a, I don't know, the English might consider the same thing to be their sense of humour, from Monty Python to The Office to Stuart Lee. And why not add our nature as part of that sort of cultural pride? If we think about the other side of this debate, and I know you talk to a lot of people for the book, in those conversations, did you find surprising perspectives? Absolutely. I mean, the, the sort of binary presentation of land rights in England has been contrived again by the land lobby. It's basically the aristocrats versus the rambler. This sort of Farmer McGregor, Peter Rabbit notion that the rambler represents some kind of enemy to the farmer. 
Whereas actually my experience of it is that by being on the land, by walking it, by swimming it, you, you actually begin to learn what's actually going on here. We've come across so many farmers, sheep farmers, arable farmers, who are open to the idea of greater public access, not just because it would bring more people by their raw milk stand, their sort of cottage industries, but also because a kind of interaction and understanding. I just watched a couple of lamb being born two days ago, it was, and I I spent seven hours with uh, the sheep farmer up there just sitting and watching the sheep through contractions. And she was explaining to me what was going on. She was uh, happy to share. She's got four rights of way cutting across her sheep field. So in some ways, she she doesn't have another option. But that relationship is reciprocal. We learn off her knowledge and she enjoys sharing it. I learned so much from her and, and from Flora, the sheep, just by watching this kind of everyday miracle occur. And there were tears streaming down my eyes. You know, it made me think of my mother and and her mother. Basically, I left with an empathy for a sheep, (laughs) which is no bad thing. So if you're the Duke of Rutland or wherever, or Ralph from Ralph and Ted, (laughs) what realistic objection do you have to someone like you climbing through a bit of barbed wire and sketching a tree? What's the argument against it? Well, the argument that is used is that the public are vandals and can't be trusted. So then then you point to Norway or you point to Scotland and say, well, look, they're they're not. It works. Yeah, you make the point that actually with a deeper connection and a personal connection with nature, uh, you're less inclined to vandalise it. I mean, I've really really tried to put myself in Duke of Wellington's mindset. His house is about a mile and a half away from his river. I swim in it uh, every summer. There's CCTV in in the uh, trees. Uh, The bailiffs are there within 15 minutes. I've never seen the Duke of Wellington take his socks off, roll up his uh, trouser legs and, and go for a little paddle. So what is his problem? Honestly, I, I don't have the answer to that, but I, it, it always leads me to Gollum and my precious. It is just that. <laughs> it's it is, mine. It, it's mine. It is that it is that sense that something is not fully yours unless it's no one else's. I've really tried to look at it from different perspectives, but it, it's misanthropic. And worse than that, it breeds misanthropy. It breeds hostility. Britain is not in need of more lines and partisanship. Humans can pass the time of day in a way that politics almost refuses them. You do need to be in a shared space, and and it really bloody helps if that space is as gorgeous as a river or somewhere like that. Like, you're not inclined to feel angry. Your alpha waves are flooding your system, and you just feel gorgeous, and the sun is amazing. Why not be nice to this dude? Why not listen to what they have to say? You're a co-founder of the Right to Roam campaign. You're calling for a change to the Countryside and Right-of-Way Act. What what's, is that specific change that you are asking for? We need to bring the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, the Crow Act, to people's doorsteps. So we're calling for responsible access to greenbelt land so that actually the majority of English people that live in urban environments can have easy access to that land. We're calling for the same to rivers, lakes and reservoirs. And we're calling for access to woodland you can raise your immune system for up to 30 days after just by a two-hour immersion into the woodland. The science doesn't 
just say our mental and physical health will be improved with access to nature. Crucially, it must be regular and immersive. Nature isn't recreation. It's not holiday. We're not going to get distinguishable benefits to our body and, and health system if we just dip into it for those that can afford to do so. When they were building the welfare state, they were looking at a right to roam as a kind of sister construct to the National Health Service. They wanted the Natural Health Service to sustain people's mental and physical health, give them the autonomous right to pursue exercise in nature, but actually rely on the NHS to you know, mend your broken bones and to be the safety net when you really are in danger. That's so interesting. It's such a fascinating subject, and uh, it's been very kind of you to take the time to talk to us. Nick Hayes, thank you so much. Have a good day. Nick and I were talking there about the Kinder Scout trespass of 1934, and last month the 90th anniversary was marked with an event called Kinder in Colour, and with us now is one of the organisers, Nadia Sheikh. Hello. Hello. Nadia, will you start by telling us the idea behind Kinder in Colour and how you got involved? So I became involved in organising Kinder in Colour because not only are there still more barriers to accessing outdoor spaces, there are more for black and people of colour. And so we just went, what if we just mark the occasion with black and people of colour? And it went from there. Tell us about the event itself. How did it go? Who turned up? It was beautiful. There was about 500 people turned up, about 300 of which were black and people of colour. We just reached out to existing groups For example, um, Wanderers of Colour, Peaks of Colour, Muslim Hikers, Wonderlust Women. So all of these brilliant groups. I don't know whether it was the largest gathering of black and people of colour going for a walk in the British countryside. It might be, but it's the first time I've ever experienced being sat in the outdoors, surrounded by hills and looking around and seeing faces that looked like mine. And was it fun? Was it people of all ages? Yeah, it was. It was. There was a really nice generational spread. There was a lovely young Geordie. I was very happy to find another person of colour from Newcastle, so that was great. And she was 10 years old and she led the walk. Wow. Yeah, she was amazing. And having a pace setter who is a 10-year-old is such a mistake because she just had all this energy. And it was just fun. It was just like, what happens when you get a group of people who have got a similar interest and love for nature all in one place who don't often get to spend time like that all in one place and... The sun was shining and we had beautiful food and music. Can we take a bit of time now to go into some more depth on the ways that black people and people of colour can feel excluded from accessing nature and the countryside? I mean, as you can imagine, it's a really complex and got many, many layers. We have experienced a lot of difficult conversations in organising this event with the outdoor community in terms of mountain leaders climbers that we approached to say we need some extra help the majority of the response was why is this even a thing why are you doing it you don't need help i think there's an element of if you're telling me that more black and people of color experience racism in rural places than they do in cities you're accusing me because when i'm out in nature i'm not racist that's where people go to first when you have all of these doors open to you the idea that they might be shut to somebody else is very hard to grapple with. And if anyone tells you that they're shut to them, just believe them. You know, there are plenty of white people who have listened and said, "Okay, I don't feel that, but how can I help? I believe it. But we're not there yet because there is this defensive mechanism. I think that comes to the fore. There's been this 
progression for the space to become a very white middle class space. So going out and enjoying nature has become an activity. So it's hiking, it's bird watching, it's canoeing, it's doing a thing, it's camping, it's traveling to a place. Our moors and our hills and our meadows and our fields are not places that are around us where we go because it is a natural human curiosity. It's become an, an event and an activity which costs money to do. So most visitors to national parks arrive in a car, but less than 50% of the population have a car. And they are difficult places to get to. So that there's a whole spectrum of reasons. And that goes from people telling me, I can't afford to get there. How do I get there? I'm not going to pay 50 quid for my train fare to go for a walk. So there's those very physical barriers. 38% of black and people of colour live within a five-minute walk of a green space as opposed to 58% of white people. And it's not like this is hidden. It's visible to anyone with their eyes open. Rural populations are 98% white. Now, that is for a number of reasons. Um, Black people and people of colour make up only 1% of visitors to national parks, as opposed to being 13% of the population overall. Uh, You just mentioned access to green spaces. And another statistic from your website 26% of black people spend time in the countryside compared to 44% of white people. So this stuff is pretty self-evident. Absolutely. There is also the thing of representation. So if you don't see yourself in an activity, why would you do it? I've spoken to a lot of, you know, first generation immigrants to the country who are like, you don't go and do nature. You don't go and spend time in nature. Nature's just there. It's just an incidental part of your life. And so like the idea of going on a hike is a weird concept, not because we don't need nature and we don't need physical movement in nature. We've made it into this thing that you do as an activity. And on that, if, as in England, only 8% of the land is accessible to people, then that scarcity that's created means that Outdoor activities get commodified. Yeah, absolutely. It is commodified totally because of that reason. I'm a naturalist and conservationist, so I work in a sector that's the least diverse after farming. So you've got farmers who manage land and then you've got conservationists who protect land, both massively not diverse. And I've always felt alone in the organisation I work in in the sector as being a person of colour that likes to go out and enjoy nature and When I think about what that means to me, it is having a sense of wonder. So it's being outside and going, oh, there's like a, there's a tree over there that looks really gnarly. I'm going to go sit under it. Because that's what we are. We're curious beings. And when you create a countryside where you can't wonder without purpose, you have an OS map and you follow it and you need to have the right equipment. It's not the same thing. Not that activities aren't great. They're just a commodified version, which has only become accessible to a certain portion of the population. I'm curious about how you managed to carve out your own relationship with nature, despite the things that we've talked about, like not seeing yourself represented. So my mum and dad don't enjoy nature at all. We never did anything outdoors. All I can remember is a deep, deep sense of empathy and worry about the natural world from being young, despite my brothers and sisters not, despite it not being there for me culturally. I remember squatting over a bucket that had like midge lava in it thinking this is magic this is a bucket of water that's been in our garden and now there's life in it how has it got there i think it's it's been that powerful that despite it not being offered to me on a plate it was the only place that made sense to me it's the only place that i felt like i belong right a sense of belonging in nature is built up the more you spend in it 
the more it becomes something you need. It's a bit addictive. For me, my sense of place and belonging as someone that lives in this country is because of blackbirds that sing on a summer evening and I'm like, ah, there's my blackbird. It's swallows arriving, so I know that winter is over. It's the first black thorn flowers. It's red wings and field fairs arriving in the autumn. I understand the world because I started to build up my relationship with nature. And if you haven't had that relationship you don't seek it out. And so if you are a first-generation, second-generation immigrant and live in an urban area, it's going to take time before some of those cultural threads thread into your sense of place and your sense of being comfortable in the outdoors. And talking to other people from Jamaica, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, and they're telling me about when they go home, still calling it home, like the bird song they hear or certain flowers or fruits, the smells and the sounds take them right back. And that's because we are utterly connected to our world and our surroundings based on nature. It's why it appears in folklore, storytelling, religion. So if you imagine that that's not a thread you've had yet with British nature, it's probably going to take a little bit of time. Rebuilding your cultural landscape based on British wildlife and British countryside. And then when you consider where specifically the English countryside and who owns much of that land sits in our history... I guess it might not be the easiest or even the most desirable identity to connect with. So English history and identity, and I guess the links to estates and land in England being built on and paid for on the back of enslaved people and the blood and sweat, that that still runs very, very deep. Hopefully that paints a picture of that. Nadia, what could government be doing to make sure that this relationship with the land is open to everyone? So there are small immediate things, access to green spaces and more green spaces near to where people live, looking at our public transport system so people can move around freely. Um, there are amazing initiatives and groups that I was talking about before, which work around representation in terms of bringing people to green spaces, which I'm sure could do with more funding and support in terms of initiatives like that, all the way along to, wouldn't it be really nice if we had the right to roam? <laughs> That can be done incrementally, right? But I get that it's a long journey and it might take a long time. But let's start opening up more spaces so people have a sense of I belong here. Thank you so much for talking to us. And and will Kindering Colour continue in some form? Is it something that will happen on the anniversary every year or will it mutate into something else? So a lot of people want to do this again not least just because of the experience of being in a green space and feeling safe and feeling represented. So we absolutely will be doing more walks. Um, when and where is to be decided, but that absolutely will happen. Watch this space. Nadia, thanks so much. Finally, for a sense of how we get to a future where more of our land is accessible to everyone, I'm going to speak to Right to Roam campaigner John Moses. Hello, John. Hi there. Let's talk about what the government is or isn't doing. So there's been a rowback. There was a review. It was Lord Agnew into Right to Roam in England specifically. Can you tell us what it looked like was going to happen and then why that's changed and what your reaction to all that is? Sure. So basically last year, the Treasury uh, commissioned Lord Agnew to look into uh, what was being termed as a kind of quantum shift in the relationship between the public and outdoor access. Uh, so obviously music to the ears of, of Right to Rome campaigners around the country. And this was obviously in the context uh, of the pandemic and lockdowns, people realising all the barriers that they had actually to access nature and green space. But the Treasury was doing it not for kind of the goodness of its heart, although I'm sure there's some people in the Treasury who uh, <laughs> felt warm and fuzzy about it too as well, but it was for financial 
reasons too. The sedentary lifestyles that we lead, I think, cost, uh, it's estimated, about £8.2 billion a year to the taxpayer. Uh, we have a mental health crisis in this country that, in part, uh, is rooted in our, our alienation and disconnection from the world around us. Um, so, for all those reasons, the Treasury was interested in financial uh, savings that could be brought about to taxpayers by opening access uh, and improving our connection to the outdoors. That got canned by the Department for the Environment and Rural Affairs, by DEFRA probably because the landowning body is much stronger there and has a lot more influence. From right to Rome's point of view, how how do you defibrillate this? Uh, I mean, we weren't necessarily shocked by the canning of Agnew. I don't think it was a a sort of tragic day for us, really. And all that happened is it raised loads and loads of attention to the issue. And I honestly believe that within a few years, we will achieve a right to roam uh, in England. The the public support for it is overwhelming. Uh, And there's a lot of anger, I think, about the the government's kind of sitting on something that basically would have benefited taxpayers financially, but would have also benefited our relationship with the natural world, which, you know, Britain is as a nation of nature lovers uh, and that's what the right to roam could be all about and you mentioned the pandemic there and people specifically spending time outdoors in the countryside during the the covid restrictions do you you think that shifted people's attitude towards right to roam or maybe even just led them to think about it it wasn't something that had really occurred to them before Absolutely. I mean, even from my own experience, you know, I I live in the countryside and I've spent most of my life walking outdoors and mountaineering and all the rest of it. Uh, But I realised there were so many places I hadn't ever actually explored on my doorstep. In a way, everyone's worlds were kind of um, shrunk a little bit during the pandemic. You know, there was only so far that we could go uh, as we wandered. People started to look more local uh, and had a more kind of microscopic lens, which the pandemic brought about. And as somebody who lives in the countryside, what do you find the range of opinion on this is in your community because it's easier someone in, who lives in the city to to think of a kind of get off my land mentality but i suspect the truth is more nuanced than that Can you talk to us a bit about that and maybe what the balance of that opinion is in people you talk to well it's interesting because um often the countryside is represented through bodies that are deeply conservative like the uh, countryside alliance for instance and really they don't represent the countryside at all even though that's their, their banner they represent a very narrow opinion a minority opinion essentially of landowning elites. Um, many of the people who live in the countryside are not that. They are nature lovers. They are people who do all kinds of work uh, and have a very different view of what access should be and what it should look like. Um, but that voice is not often represented in the main organisations that uh, allege to represent the countryside. Um, obviously, there are a range of kind of complex opinions on, on access issues. Um, whether you're a fisherman, a canoeist, a, a wild swimmer, a conservationist, a farmer, um, you're all going to have a slightly different slant on it. But our perspective is that um, we try and be friendly and polite to everyone we talk to. We've spent quite a lot of time on the podcast recently, I think, talking about the health and well-being benefits of accessing nature. What else, though? If, if you think about what right to roam could say in, in principle and in practice about society. Why else is it important? I'll give you a really concrete example. So uh, I live next to two rivers. One is the River Mono, which has very little public access. Uh, But the other is the River Wye, which actually is one of the few rivers that has a statutory guarantee uh, of access and navigation rights. Um, So that means that unlike many other rivers in the country, um, the public are allowed to access it. It's guaranteed by Parliament. Um, 
there has recently been a lot of attention on the state of our rivers in this country, the damage that's been done by uh, pollution from phosphates, from sewage dumping. Uh, and one of the most vigorous campaigns in defence of a river in the country is on the River Wye. Uh, and that's no accident. Access creates love. It creates a relationship. And that relationship is then used to defend nature uh, against the threats that it, it faces. And it's allowing people to become guardians of places that, frankly, uh, the environment agency and the regulatory bodies have completely failed to protect. Scotland has had Nordic-style right to roam freedoms for over 20 years now. Is, is this inevitable, that things will change in England? I think campaigning is necessary. Um, we have kept the fence posts in our head for a long time. Um, people don't even kind of see the countryside that's around them anymore. Uh, we accept the keep outside and it's become kind of like part of our DNA. And, you know, that affects you every day when you go for a walk. So I think people need that kind of cultural shift. And I think that's something that campaigning can do. It's certainly what um, being involved in the right to roam has done for me. Um, so I think that's important. It's not just about getting a kind of policy change from above. We also have to have a cultural change that comes with it as well. And that's what will help people um, respect the nature that they get access to. But that's psychological as much as it is political. For anyone who's listening to this and thinking, I, I want to do something, I want to get involved, what can they do? So we have a mailing list that you can join up to and that'll keep you abreast of things. But more importantly than that, um, we are setting up local groups around the country. If there is not a local group, get in touch with us. We'll help you set one up. We'll, we'll do an event. Nick will come down with his bazooki uh, and sing you a nice song. Uh, actually, that'll probably put a lot of people off. So um, <laughs> bazooki is optional. Brilliant. John Moses, thanks so much for talking to us. Pleasure. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast well we'd love to hear from you if you've got any thoughts on how nature can be made more accessible for everyone and maybe tell us about the benefits you get from it uh, we hear plenty from ed about his uh, own relationship with that pond and the various are they foul would you say it's foul that you uh, encounter largely fair then you can email us do it through the website it's cheerfulpodcast.com yes and Rowan Smith got in touch with us. I really like this. You're going to really like the title of this. You're going to like the whole email. The title is Democracy Sausage. I'm in. You're in. Now, weirdly, I knew about this because of something I saw over the weekend. Did you know that in Australia, they have stalls at the polling booth selling sausages on bread for hungry voters? Did you also know that the only reason a result like this in the election was possible, this is a recent election where Labour won, with a strong green showing, this election was only possible because Australia has preferential voting. If it would be good if you did an episode on democracy and where the UK comes in the world ranking of democratic nations and what we can do to improve it. Um, maybe how the Lib Dems messed up their chance to change the voting system by bringing it to referendum. And you might conclude that the next government should make it a priority to change the system to preferential for the sake of democracy and fairness. Does this submission look like spam? Oh, no, no, sorry. That's, that's a bit... <laughs> Uh, no, it looks like sausage. Um, never mind the voting system. We're interested in the sausage, aren't we? I mean, well, like, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, I got there before you. I mean, honestly, sell the sizzle, not the sausage, or sell the sizzle and the sausage. <laughs> I saw a picture of a dog eating a democracy sausage at the weekend from Australia. And I thought, okay, well, the dog's cute, but what's the sausage? A vegetarian sausage is available. Well, I'm sure that would be the case. But well, I think we should, honestly, any Australian listeners or indeed listeners who know about the democracy sausage, or maybe traditions from around the world to encourage people to vote maybe there's democracy hummus 
Palace or democracy, I don't know, pizza. And just actually anything on how you vote in different parts of the world is interesting to Well, they pull levers in America, don't they? Yes. Do you remember butterfly ballots and hanging chads and Florida in 2000? That wasn't so good. But. Yeah. Also, the, I think the day of the week an election is on can change things quite significantly, yeah. can't it? Yeah. A, a lot of countries vote on the weekend, whereas we do what on a Thursday. Yeah, I, I feel like we've slightly let down Rowan because Rowan sent a sort of serious email and hooked us in with the democracy sausage. But we were so hooked that we've ignored the rest of the email. It's, uh, no, we're too distracted <laughs> by this sausage. Yeah. Are you going to congratulate me on um, not going for the obvious low-hanging sandwich fruit? Oh, Yes, I, funny if it hadn't occurred to me, but now that you've mentioned it. That's good. That's that's showing growth. That's showing that you're starting to heal. Can I just say you sort of slightly let yourself down by then mentioning it and seeking to claim credit for not having mentioned it? <laughs> yeah. So you go to the back of the class, thanks. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're in the outro. We are. And I just want to remind you about our live show at King's Place in London on the 17th of July, which is Sunday. It's in the afternoon. Ed, you were asking, what are we going to do? What what can people expect? Yeah. And I wanted to pitch you an idea. Yeah. What if we were to book Jerry Springer and we try and sort out this whole love triangle situation with me, you and Dan the lifeguard? Is that what they call dead air? I feel you're in denial about it. Are you feeling jealous? Yes, very much so. And I, th- I think the listeners will have noticed that our bromance isn't what it was. Yikes. You've had your head turned by Dan. Actually, I did five laps um, yesterday. And do you feel you were trying to show off to impress him? <laughs> no, I was trying to show off to impress you. Were you flexing your muscles for him before you jumped in? Were you doing little stretches in front of him? No, because I was listening to a podcast. You know, I've got these Swim P3 players. Oh, yes, you were listening to my other podcast, The Drift. No, I wasn't actually. So, th- so then when you, you got out and you're dripping with water, did, did you say to Dan, so uh, it's pretty impressive, five laps from me there? Dan had gone, actually, but... Uh, I just think, like, for example, you in May... You're quite needy, aren't you? Yes, in May you're planning Dan's Christmas present. Yeah, that's true. I don't mind, but you, you didn't get me a birthday present. No, I know, it's, 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 it's on its way. <laughs> You've declined many of my social oh. invitations, most recently my Eurovision party. I know, I had to do, like, the media on the Sunday morning, oh. No, this I, is I like just a... feel like you don't delight in me anymore like you're delighting Dan. Oh, no. So for the live show, what if me and Dan did a duet of uh, Elaine Page and Barbara Dixon's I Know Him So Well? OK, I think we should move on. I think you should stay with me for the sake of the listeners. I am staying with you. OK, I just, I'm a bit worried that Dan's going to turn your head. You're going to start a swimming podcast with him. He'll be like this cool stepdad. I'll be sleeping outside in the car. I haven't got a car. It's too early in the morning for me to cope with this neurosis. <laughs> Right, come on. So what you're saying, that is one thing that anyone buying a ticket to our live show uh, can definitely not expect, then. You've, you've poo-pooed that idea. Maybe I'll bring my zapper. You should definitely bring your zapper. You should do a temperature check with it on the way in. Yeah, it's true. I checked the temperature of one of my children yesterday, the other day, and it was we decided because actually we were trying to <laughs> we were trying to work. You know, you know those temperature things where you test the temperature of the chicken. Right. Yes. I said we don't have one of those, but I said maybe we can use the zapper. <laughs> the problem is we used it on one of our children. They were thirty-four degrees centigrade, which I, I think is artificially low. So we, I'm, I'm having my doubts about the zapper. Let's say for sure the zapper will put in an appearance at the live show, and you can get tickets by going to the King's Place website. Shall I thank? 
our guests. Yes. Thanks to Nick Hayes, John Moses and Nadia Sheikh. Emma Caution produces the audio for our podcast. Rachel Barmer is responsible for all the content you hear. Thanks to Rachel for all the research and the guest booking. Rachel is supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed C composed our music. James Deacon made our eye dents. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been leading the aubergine revolution. He's been telling tales of shoplifting seagulls. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful.